0: Hey, welcome back to Female Founder World. It's Jasmine here. I am the host of Female Founder World. I am the creator of Female Founder World, our community and our events. And I hope that this holiday season has been treating you and your business really well. I hope the orders are flying through and Things are going smoothly. If they're not, you're not alone. I feel you come and vent in our community group. People are talking about it. Uh, The link is in the show notes if you want to join our closed community to talk about that or really anything else that's going on in your business. Today, I'm chatting with Jess Hatzis. She's another Aussie. She's based out of Melbourne, and she's the co-founder of Frank Body, and also a creative agency called Willow and Blake, but I think you'll know her best for Frank. They really took off kind of in the early days of Instagram, they became one of the first brands to adopt just this really like conversational character-driven tone on social media and to leverage social media as a way to build an audience and launch a company. She talks a lot about, you know, how they got traction in the early days of Frank Body and then how things have kind of shifted now that they are a really serious beauty company. They have a massive player in the body care space. I read that they're on track to do hundred million in annual revenue. They are not just like a little social media brand anymore. And she talks about how you like pivot from being an Instagram first or a TikTok first brand into something that is taken really seriously in the category, which I think is super interesting because I know a lot of you out there like have blown up on TikTok and that's kind of how you got started. And now maybe you want to be stocked in Sephora or Ulta and how do you kind of get that credibility? I hope you love this conversation. If you do, drop us five stars wherever you're listening to podcast. All of the reviews are super helpful. It's how we find new listeners and grow the show. All right, let's jump in. You are now entering Female Founder World with your host, Jasmine Garnsworthy. Jess, welcome to Female Founder World. It's so exciting to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. It's um, been a long time coming, this chat. I'm excited. I know. I know. I feel like I've been following what you guys have been doing forever, ever since Frank Body first launched back in, what was it, 2013? Yeah. Yeah. It'll be 10 years next year. It's terrifying and amazing all at once. That is amazing. Okay, so for people who don't, you know, don't know your story and, and what you're working on, introduce us to your businesses and what it is that you've been building.
1: Yeah, so my first business that I'd love to talk about is Willow and Blake. It's a creative and branding agency, and it was actually what we, we created first before we built Frank Body. Uh, so, I'm a copywriter by trade, and so is my business partner, Bree. And we launched Willow and Blake, I want to say about 12, 13 years ago, with the idea of just trying to create refreshing and original tone of voices for brands, because it was very stale. It's not like what you see now. There's so many amazing creatively led brands out there, but flashback 10, 15 years ago and it was really stale, driven a lot by a very corporate language that wasn't very customer-centric. Mm-hmm. For us, it just made sense to, think to the consumer in a more down-to-earth and tangible way. Um, doesn't mean it always needs to be like quirky and fun. It just needs to be a little bit more relatable and less about the company and more about the end you know, consumer or reader. So, we launched Willow and over the last decade have grown that into a full service branding agency and that's our specialty. We build brands from the ground up and we were working with a lot of clients who came to us for that, you know, refreshing voice and a new take on a brand and then they were scared by the ideas and we're always... Mm -hmm. Diluting it back to this safe place that made them feel comfortable, and for us, that was never the, vers- the best version of the brand to put out in the world. So we we were having this chat amongst ourselves around, well, what if we had full creative control over a brand and we could really disrupt an industry and do something that people hadn't seen before? And at the same time, we were talking with our other people who would eventually become our co-founders in Frank Body, um, Stephen, Alex, and. We were trying to come up with a product idea that we could work through e-com and use social. We had all these ideas that we wanted to bring together. And again, I need to frame this is 2012 when we're having these
0: conversations mm-hmm. and you know, brands on social media didn't exist. So Different we thought times. Instagram what, was barely even a thing at this Yeah, moment. it was
1: just launching.
0: Um
1: we thought there's this awesome platform here where it's peer-to-peer communication. What if we could talk to you know, potential customers as a brand on this platform. We were really interested in health and wellness and we we're making a lot of, I guess, clean swaps for lack of a better term in our own lives. And it was Steve, one of my co-founders who came up with the idea for the original coffee scrub, which was what put Frank Boddy on the map. So we just started mixing everything by hand. It was that really, you know, like kind of cliche startup story. We were in a little warehouse, it was freezing and We had a cement mixer called Frank the Tank and all of our friends came to help (laughs) pack it. You know, we're working our day jobs and then working all night to try and get Frank off the ground. And we were building up a social following in the background for this product that hadn't launched yet. Um, We thought it's better to launch to an audience of people that are interested in this content that we're creating. Um,
0: Which is quite a visionary move at the time, can I just say. Like now it's common practice to build an audience before, but I feel like you guys were really early on that.
1: It, I think it, um, it was that new generation of branding people and marketers coming mm-hmm. through. We were in our early 20s at the time. Um, so, you know, it was really the start of anyone from our generation with the elder millennials coming into the mm-hmm. workforce, <laughs> and trying to disrupt the way the brands had done things. Um, so, for us, it just made sense. Like, instead of launching this product and talking into the abyss, let's build a community. They didn't know what we were going to launch, but we would curate a community through content that was related to what our product was going to be. And we launched that in June 2013 and had no idea what to expect and it just immediately took off because I think the product was like nothing that people had seen before. We were really sick of buying crappy body scrubs with microbeads in the supermarket that didn't do anything. We wanted something that felt quite abrasive and you actually immediately felt the results of it and we wanted to create a voice that people could relate to so it was a lot a lot a lot at the start um you know from the physical manufacturing of the product to the 24-hour social media schedule that we had ourselves on because scheduling tools didn't exist yet mm-hmm. um and, you know we were doing all the customer service and everything ourselves and we had no idea that this product that we created was going to take off in the way it did to such a global audience Um, and so fast forward you know 10 years and we sit in an office in Melbourne with our two teams for Willow and Blake and Frank Body together you know there's 50 odd people in that room and you know it was just the five of us in the beginning it's amazing
0: Wow. I was reading, you know, doing some research on Frank and where you guys are at. And I was reading some of the milestones that you've hit over the last couple of years. And it was like, you know, that goals to reach hundred million in sales by 2024 and tripling revenue from 2019 to 2020. just like this wild growth that is still happening, you know, 10 years later, it's not like the brand just kind of like took off in the early days. It's like, you guys are still finding ways to accelerate growth. And I want to definitely talk all about what's working now, but let's kind of stick in those early days for a little bit and and chat about what was really driving that traction and and what you did kind of to get those eyeballs on your product kind of at day one.
1: Yeah, it was really hands-on. Um, I don't want to sugarcoat it for anyone. It was a lot of work we, so we were running Willow and Blake, so we knew Mm -hmm. how to do social and content and brand. And so that we were very fortunate as founders that that was in our wheelhouse. So for those of us on the sort of branding and marketing side of the business, we, it was a really rigorous posting schedule on social. So, you know, every hour of the day, 24 hours a day, because we were talking to an international audience. So that meant taking it in terms to set your alarm at 2 o'clock in the morning and put a post up mm-hmm. because there was no other way to do it back then. Thank God now we have scheduling tools to do that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, really engaged community management. So there's nothing worse than a brand that launches and then doesn't take the time to actually engage with their customer base. So we were on there starting conversations on our pages, on our customers' pages, on influencers' pages. and red influencers, wasn't even a thing then. Um, we were sending product out to everyone. So that meant building huge lists of thousands of what you would call at the time uh calls um, or bloggers, because that's all it was back mm-hmm. then. Um we would email them, you know, by the hundreds a day and just try and collect addresses to send product out to people. And back then people weren't charging for posts. It was much more yeah. exchange. So, it's a really different landscape now, but it was just a huge volume game. And so, we got the the idea was just the most powerful form of marketing is word of mouth. The more groundswell we can create, the more people that we can have talking about this product online, the better. So, on our packaging and with all of our packaging, we sent out a flyer that instructed people how to take a Frank Effect photo and put it on social. Which, if anyone has followed the brand from the early days, you may remember the coffee scrub photos of the legs and just basically babes in the
0: shower which was really also I remember it very well yeah (laughs) that wasn't a thing that people did. you didn't take I definitely posted those photos yeah (laughs) I definitely was was posting those photos I think I was working at pop sugar at the time I think you were yeah I think it was actually Mm -hmm. how we met
1: um yeah so you know that wasn't very normal to take photos of your products that you're using in the bathroom and publicise it to the world. But we wanted to create this sense of community, not even a sense of like an actual community where people could, you know, be part of something that was really bold. And I I liked that our brand, there's a lot of sexual innuendo in our brand. We wanted to be like that because I don't like this idea that, you know, women ashamed for being sexual beings like we are. So that sort of language has been part of our brand since day one, because there's nothing shameful about it. It's fun. It's such a big part of our nature and who we are as women or however you identify, but it had been really absent from women's brands for so long. So we were trying to just reclaim all of these things that had been stripped out of women's brands because they were run by 60-year-old men who were so disconnected from us as the consumer. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I think it was all of these elements combined that um, really meant that it got traction in the early days. And then that was difficult to sustain. It grew meteorically over the first two years and then the algorithm changed really drastically. And we realised how much we had our eggs in one basket and Instagram was so pivotal to our business. But if that stopped working we were in a lot of trouble and that was a a really big sort of inflection point for us looking at, okay, how do we diversify not only our marketing streams but our distribution channels? And that was really when we started to talk about things like moving into retail and how do we reposition the brand as not just that coffee scrub brand on Instagram and actually be considered a really serious player in the beauty industry. So that was the driving force behind all the decisions we made in the years after that.
0: So is that why then you kind of layered in all of these other products cuz you've also you have the full like body care and face care line now. You're definitely more of a 360 beauty brand than just that kind of like hero product. I still think like OG fans will will know Frank Body for the scrub and that's kind of like the first thing you think of, but you have all of these other great products now as well. Was that kind of influenced by that strategy? Is that why you went that way?
1: Very much. So we I noticed a lot when we were talking to journalists in particular that the the take of the brand was like, oh, you're that brand from Instagram. And Mm -hmm. it wasn't meant in anything other than an observant way. But in my mind, yes, it was great that people knew us from social, but I wanted to be, we all wanted us to be recognized as that brand that really changed people's skin because the product was very efficacious. So everything that we created thereafter had to really deliver a result for an affordable price. So how do you, take a brand from being perceived as this social media brand to a really credible beauty player. Mm-hmm. You just continue to make really good products and you it, whether it's right for your brand or not, you look at partnering with retailers who add a lot of credibility. So that was why we first partnered with Mecca Beauty here in Australia. Um, that made sense for us. If we were going to go anywhere in retail, it was to Mecca because they were or are the premium beauty retailer. In Australia. Um, and so that was the first retail partnership that we did. And that was a really important point, sort of repositioning who we were as a brand. And now we look at ourselves as high performance body care. So even though we have facial skin care, it's not the primary focus of the brand. We focus on body care that are, is really innovative, delivers great results for things like body acne, KP, you know, it's Pesky skin conditions that we all get from time to time, but without having to pay hundred dollars for a body scrub because it's just insane what some brands are charging. We wanted something that was affordable, really good quality, and gave people a result. So that's how we continue to build out the portfolio now.
0: I think like a lot of brands are probably in this position now that have come up through TikTok in like twenty twenty. We see all of these beauty brands that just like exploded on TikTok, and now they're kind of. A TikTok beauty brand, and how do they then move out of that and try and get into a Sephora or an Altar or one of these partners, and actually be known for their formulations and not just kind of like as a trendy, as a trendy platform driven, um, platform driven brand? So I actually feel like what you're saying. Even though you've done this in like the Instagram era, it's so relevant for people who have come up over the last couple of years using that channel. And okay, how do we get taken a little bit more seriously in this category? Yeah, it's
1: tough because it's such a you know, double edged sword, social, because it propels you out into the world and puts you in front of all of these people. But then, yeah, you're exactly mm-hmm. top brands are subject to the same sort of skepticism that we were as an Instagram brand. And I think you need to use the tool to your advantage because a lot of big retailers don't know how to do digital well, even now. Yeah. It's your strength when you're going in there talking to them about this, you know, potentially younger Gen Z audience that you have such a great relationship with. Taking that into negotiations with, you know, retailers in the example of a a product-based business is gold. Um, You can't hang your entire hat on that though. You still have to have really good products and good consumer feedback. So, I think looking at things like your net promoter score and your reviews and ensuring that they are really top-notch and looking at how you integrate them more into your marketing mix is really important too.
0: I want to understand how you have been kind of funding the business as it's been growing. I read that you guys started, you know, super bootstrapped. You had like $10,000. What did that go to? And then how do you get from $10,000 to building literally one of the biggest beauty empires in Australia now?
1: We did everything we possibly could ourselves. I think that by nature people can be really lazy and they think, I don't know how to do that. Everything is mm-hmm. a Google search away. Like I'm um, not every single thing you need to know, you can learn via Google. Uh, you know, we if the silliest things like how do you print shipping labels? Like if uh-huh. good, you look in our Google search, you'll find that. How do you start a logistics or how do you find a three PL in Los Angeles? Because we were expanding into the US. We just asked all of the questions. That money initially went to the ingredients for the original coffee scrub, a little bit of money on a developer for the first website, which is hilarious when I think back to what it looked like in my (laughs) mind. Some legal fees, you know, for setting up the entity and all that kind of stuff. So it was really, really bootstrapped. And then we just did everything. We didn't hire people. We just took on every role within the company ourselves, because I think Money can make people really lazy and then we just start outsourcing everything. And I think there's something really nice about knowing the ins and outs of every corner of your business before you grow it. And you know, then you learn your weak spots and when you can afford to hire the right people, you do and they can take on these elements of the roles that you're not so good at. Um, So, we did that for years and we were really fortunate that we, right place, right time, right idea. So, it grew quickly and we had money coming in to reinvest into the business and it was about, my timeline could be murky here, but I want to say five years in where we first took um, outside capital. We'd been exploring it for several years because the, I always say like the private equity sharks were circling when we I we launched. Um, and then, you, know, you have to be really careful who you get into bed with. There are some incredible, kind and smart people. And then it, it, there are some really ruthless people in that industry too. So you mm-hmm. have to really clever and um, be clear with what you want from any capital that you bring in. We knew we needed strategic capital. We didn't need money essentially because we had money. We needed someone who had done this before and who would be there to help us understand our blind spots, to help us see our mistakes before we made them. And So, that was why we honed in on really strategic partners. So, think big beauty conglomerates, Unilever Ventures became our first non-founding board member and joined the company in 2018, 2018? 2017 potentially. Three or four years later, we raised capital again from a private equity company in China because we were expanding into the region. We knew we weren't capable of doing that well ourselves. Mm. We needed a partner that could help us localise and we Had waited so long to go into China because we were never going to go into the market when there were animal testing regulations and finally those laws changed which enabled us to operate in the region and so they helped us by bringing a local knowledge, helping us uh, set up localised operations in China and we still work day to day with that team but we have this sort of sounding board on our board who have decades of experience between them on operating beauty brands in the region. And so that's the extent of the capital that we've raised, two two rounds. And yeah, it's um I think it's really interesting how much having that that sort of money and investment in the business changes things because you go from not really being accountable to anybody to being highly accountable um, for potentially millions or tens of millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot for a a young founding team who is somewhat inexperienced outside of their own business. So I think think long and hard before anyone that might be listening takes on capital and just really assess what's important to you and whether it's the right thing for you at this time.
0: That is such good advice. I, I'm so curious. You know, you said that you ha- kind of had advisors and, and a team that helped you launching into China. What have you learned about entering that market that you think, you know, because I think a lot of people are curious about it and interested in it, but it's just this whole other beast and it looks so, um, so daunting. What have you learned that you can share about expanding into China or Asia in general?
1: Yeah, we're, to be honest, we're still very early days. Um, We only launched into the region officially a couple of months ago, so I don't think we've even been in there long enough to take huge learnings. We were operating cross-border, you know, in the years prior because that meant you could get around animal testing regulations. Um, The thing that I've learned is how different the customer is, Uh, and I think that's probably pretty obvious when you think about the cultural differences between somewhere like Australia and China, but we had to completely localise the brand. so content with local talent local influences everything was translated the skew assortment was significantly reduced it is frank body but even the tone of voice changed there's so many sort of colloquialisms and uh a quite a cheeky and sarcastic mm-hmm. tone of voice that doesn't translate well in china so we've um really sort of morphed the brand into something that's a bit more suitable for the region under the guidance of our team in Shanghai.
0: Interesting. I know that you are the expert in all things consumer brand, tone of voice and branding. You know, you've done it yourself for your own business and you've done it for many other businesses as well. I feel like I'm looking out, when I look out into the space now, I'm seeing seeing a lot of the same tone of voice being replicated across different brands. I think like Starface does it really well. I think they're someone who kind of like cut through and did like a cheeky, fun tone of voice that stood out. Um, There's another brand called Experiment Beauty, which is a little bit newer, which is also kind of doing it really well. But aside from that, I'm not seeing a whole lot of people kind of stand out. I'm seeing a lot of the same, same. How does someone like now when there's so much noise, there's so much happening in this space, how does somebody build this kind of identity and this tone of voice that is distinctive and different, like are there exercises that you guide people through? Is there something, is, is there a way that people can kind of come up with these concepts? Like what advice do you have for folks who are trying to figure this out at the moment?
1: Yeah, it's tough. You're right. It's a really saturated industry, not even just it's beauty. It's busy. You no, know, it's consumer brands in general um, because the, the threshold to entering the market is so much mm-hmm. lower. Um, which I think is a great thing because it's really democratised the space and you have founders of, you know, a lot of women and people of colour who were historically really blocked from entering the market able to get in there. What I think, what I see is the biggest mistake is brands, and they still do it, they come to us at Willow and Blake and say, "How I love mm. what you did at Frank or I love what you did at Briogeo or, you know, any of these other brands. Can we replicate that? It's death mm. by copying, really. It's... yeah. Consumers are smart. I think the biggest mistake people make is underestimating. If you know that brand and you think they're great, chances are the customer base you're trying to totally. tap into is already aware of them. Not every brand needs to be cheeky and fun. It actually just makes no sense for some brands. Um, <laughs> yeah, it sounds like such sort of boring advice, but just don't try and replicate what other people have done. Um, really understand the target audience and the values of your brand. What is, why are you here? Um, if you can't identify that, there's no foundation to build a brand off. And it was that foundation that allowed us to create the voice. So then just sort of wake up one day and be like, oh, my God, like what if we talked in first person and frankly, <laughs> it was um, honesty and, and smarts and community. That was what we decided. Okay, this is really important to us. If we go ahead and build this brand, so what does that mean? How do we talk with people in a way that reflects those values? And so that's what we we do that sort of stuff at Willow a lot with people. We help them unpack all of the ideas in their head, get it down on paper, so that there's a really clear roadmap for who they are as a brand. So I think having it down on paper and it be every decision you make be based on what is right for the brand and not your personal opinion, even if you are the founder it's really important not to get those two things mixed up um, and that's where I see mm. brands go astray because the founder is it's like watching a tennis match. They can't work out what direction they're going in um, and they make decisions based on a whim and things that they see outside and it's very difficult then advice. when you bring people on, you know, like, they're like what do I copy? Do I copy you or do I copy the brand guidelines? I can't work it out. So, brand, 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 always first.
0: Yeah that is um that's really smart advice and i also find you know as someone who's like built my own my own brands and i also find that you as the founder your your taste your tone of voice will evolve and the business shouldn't be changing as your personal like taste and tone and interests are changing and that can be really hard when you're the person who's like driving all of the content so having that really clear delineation between this is the business this is the this is me
1: Oh, 100%. I'm a completely different person mm-hmm. to who I was. You know, I'm, I'll am i be 37 in a few months. I am mm. so different to who I was when I launched this brand and so different to a consumer who's 20 years old. I'm nearly 17 years older than her. Yeah. Um, so sometimes I'm like, I hate it, which means it's really like not do it. Um, it's just, I'm just at a different point in my life. I yeah. Think I, a really interesting challenge as a marketer um, and someone in brand is to just create things that aren't for you, and try to be selfless in your creation and create something that's of value to the person that you're trying to give it to. Um, not always easy, but it's the goal
0: of what we're doing. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I want to ask you really selfish questions now. So we are, you know, we've had a bunch of brands come to uh, come to Female Founder World, come to us and ask us to build and launch um, closed online community spaces for us, which is what we've, uh, for them, which is what we've built for ourselves and has been working really well. And is just this incredible, incredible space. If you're listening and you're not part of it, link is in the show notes, come and join. But I haven't launched an agency before. I haven't done this kind of work before. I've definitely freelanced and had kind of like, you know, small projects and teams working with other brands, but not in the same kind of way that we're looking at doing it in 2023. After you've kind of scaled your own agency, what learnings or what advice do you have for me from someone who's about to kind of embark on this?
1: Oh, yeah, agency life is so different to Mm. product life and there's good and bad sides of that. Yeah, you may have – Frank got so – big so quickly and willow grew but at a steadier pace um, Mm -hmm. and more controllable pace once you sort of set things in motion in a product world it's kind of hard to undo them willow there is no business or an agency without great people and if Mm -hmm. that's not the sort of reason that you make every decision that you make then the agency is never going to succeed whether it's yours or anyone who's listening who's thinking or already in agency and looking at how to scale it and we've made those mistakes before and it wasn't until we realized that the heart and soul of this company is the amazing creative and strategic team that we have built here so we're not that we're not like this at frank because you're obviously always really really selective and careful with who you bring into the team but there's much more at stake in an agency scenario because you put one wrong ingredient into that recipe and the whole thing is ruined Mm. so much about an agency especially one in a creative space which yours is it needs to be really safe an employee at frank once described the the space that we've got and in our, you know, co-shared offices as psychologically safe. And that was Mm. the compliment I've ever received because she said, I've never felt like this at work. Like I can challenge you as my boss if I think that your idea isn't right and I can work really collaboratively with you um, and everyone else in our team. And that showed me that we were getting things right and that's how you scale an agency. You have to create that workplace where people feel like they can be vulnerable, they can challenge leadership in the right way or with the ultimate goal of doing the best work. And as soon as we all feel like we're working towards doing the best work, you kind of unlock these layers. Um, and learning how to network. I suck at networking. Mm-hmm. I'm a very shy person. I'm fine here talking about the stuff that I do every single day. Mm-hmm. Throw me into a room with strangers where I have to make small talk and I'm Oh, I'm shocking at it. Yes, it hasn't hold you, held you back, don't worry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so like, we're really
1: trying to get out there again after the last few years of, you know, yeah. with COVID and just focusing on building our networks so that we can, you know, bring that sort of business development back into Willow. So, yeah, my biggest piece of advice is just focus on the people.
0: Great advice. And then the last thing I ask everyone who comes on the show is for a resource. It could be a book, a podcast, a habit, something that's been helping you as you've been kind of building your businesses and upscaling as a leader and an entrepreneur.
1: I have to say I'm a podcast addict um, and I have been for a really, really long time. So I love listening to other founders' stories. My Listening to founders who are really different to you is quite important. So it's really lovely to Mm. listen to people that you can sort of have that really like relatable element to then I challenge myself to listen to experiences of people who've had a very different life to me because they're going to teach me something they're more likely to teach me something that I don't already know or I have never experienced so we all have bias when we're selecting the things that we read or we listen to and trying to acknowledge that about yourself um and make sure that you're you know taking on the opinions of people that you wouldn't potentially usually um is a huge way to learn um and the other one I did it on the couch this morning after I had a a shocking night's sleep because I have insomnia and I thought I could go into this day going oh my god I have to record a podcast oh my god then I have somewhere and I just went no that like I am going to have the best day. I am starting my day by talking to this amazing woman who I really admire. That's awesome. Then I'm going to have an hour on my own, which when you have a kid, never happens, <laughs> to listen to a podcast without it being interrupted by the wiggles. So I was like, I just reframe the way I was approaching the day. And that is, a. It, it was a really big part of my life. And I definitely felt like I lost it for quite a while over the last year or two. And I got... I got into this very negative and limited mindset and I'm trying very hard to focus back on things that, you know, I, I'm a big believer in manifestation and positive mindset and it left my life for a while and mm-hmm. so did all the, I guess, riches, whether you think of them as monetary or for me they're more potentially spiritual, left my life too. And I thought I need to get this back. This, was, this is controllable bring this mindset of abundance and happiness and health back into your life it's a big part of what I'm trying to focus on at the moment um not to get too woo-woo for anyone who's not interested in that space but you oh my know, god I
0: could do woo-woo all day Z. are you <laughs> um you are you like a a Lacey Phillips to be magnetic girly do you get into that podcast and her courses
1: no. tell me all oh, about it I love this. it
0: Okay. I love it. So her whole thing is, she's like, I think she's trademarked the term neural manifestation. She works with a, um, someone who is a psychologist and has much more of a like scientific rooting than I think a lot of like manifestation coaches. And her whole framework is like most manifestation coaching is super spiritual bypassy and doesn't actually, it's not, it's not super tangible about like taking actionable steps. And she does, Um, these programs around, you know, doing a lot of shadow work in a child work and it's all around reprogramming your subconscious through these like hypnosis and journaling to break, like figure out what it is that's what limiting beliefs you have that are holding you back and really reprogram it at a subconscious level. It is, I've been doing it for the last year and like, it has helped me with so much. And if you're someone who's into that space, you should, it's like $20 a month. The podcast is free it's so worth doing.
1: I would love that. All right, I'm going to annoy you to send me am notes. Send, I'll send you them. the link
0: after this. Yeah, it's so good. It's so good. Oh my God, Jess, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm such a fan of everything that you've built and what a treat to have you on Female Founder World.
1: Well, likewise. I really hope that um, this chat was helpful Um and, you know, maybe answered a question or two for anyone who was listening. But thank you so much for having me. I love having these types of talks and helping other founders or would-be founders. It's my favorite thing to do.
0: Thanks for listening. Please remember to drop us a five-star review or if you're feeling like you really loved that episode, take a screenshot, share us to Instagram stories. We are at female founder world. I'm at Jasmine Garnsworthy. And we'll be sure to repost and say thank you. And just generally, we'll make our day. So pay it forward. All right. I'll chat to you next time. Bye.